Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 484 for June 5th, 2019. On today's show, pianist Brittany Anju. If you'd like to help me keep making the Jazz Session for years to come, join today for just five bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. You'll get a monthly bonus episode, early access to every show, and more. If you're already a member, please do encourage your friends and your social media contacts to join. Nothing works better than word of mouth. Did you know that fewer than 1% of the people who listen to this show are members? Let's change that, okay? Thanks. I started a new project on social media a couple weeks ago. Every weekday at 1 p.m. Eastern, I'm posting a clip from an archival episode of The Jazz Session on Instagram.com slash The Jazz Session and Twitter.com slash Jazz Sesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H. I'm also posting these clips on the show's new YouTube channel, which you can find at thejazzsession.com slash YouTube. If you're a recent discoverer of the show, this is a great way to catch up because the show's been going for 12 years now and there are many hundreds of interviews in the archives. So if you'd like to hear them 30 seconds at a time, this is a cool way to do it. Okay, look, I already had to say the title of Brittany Andrews' new album twice during the actual interview, but what the hell, let's try it a third time. I think it's Enemijo Reciprocati, which means death to all radio DJs and podcast hosts who will have to pronounce this in Esperanto. It starts like this. I'm very excited to have pianist and composer Brittany Anju on the show. And uh, Brittany, first of all, thanks for being here. Welcome. Hi, Jason. Thank you. Thanks, dude. And I'm going to start right off by uh, embarrassing myself because I, what I was going to do was let you say the name of the record, but I thought, no, that's that's a wimp out. I'm not going to do that. So I am going to try to say the name of the record myself, which... I think. Okay, you're going to say it. Uh, here here comes. Excellent. Yeah, so uh, All right. I await your laughter, but I think it's pronounced more or less Enemijo Reciprocatai. Uh, Is that close at all? Totally, totally. Fabulous. It's, uh, yeah, Enemijo Reciprocatai. Reciprocatai. Okay, so it's where accent, the, the accent is. On, that was yeah, tremendous. with the accent on the second to the last syllable. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, thank yeah, you. you got it. You, uh, well, can, yeah, you, can, you can speak Esperanto. <laughs> I got it. I got it ish. Now, I did, when it was sent to me initially, I did wonder, oh, I wonder if this title's in Esperanto, because about 20-something years ago, maybe maybe even a little more now, before the internet, I sent away for a Learn Esperanto kit in the mail. Really? Uh, yeah, when I lived in Tucson, and I got it, and it was Oh, my like, God, in the mail. Yeah, it was like some pamphlets <laughs> and, you know... Um, I don't think it was tapes or anything. That is, <laughs> you know, you that's just so exciting. Yeah, to me. you just had to do it oh on your God. own, <laughs> and I was totally into it at that time. So yeah, so I do speak I speak English, although you know the jury's out. And then I I do speak Japanese, but I thought it would be cool <laughs> if there were like some universal language everybody could speak. And I kind of started researching at the library, of course, because that's how you had to do it. You know, looking at awesome. tablets for universal languages, and then the, I learned about Esperanto. But then it seemed like not 
Esperanto had kind of been a cool idea that had passed out of existence. So, I, and I've almost never encountered anyone who is familiar with it just in my regular life. So when th- this is all a very long preamble uh, of just me talking, which is a little obnoxious, all of which to say when this record came and I thought the title might be an Esperanto, I was super excited. And then when it was confirmed that it was and that there's a whole suite titled in Esperanto, I was super excited and of course have to ask why? How did that happen? Oh man, I'm so excited to hear that. You are m- my people. You're the people I'm <laughs> looking to connect with. <laughs> really, literally, the people who are into jazz and is- and who are also into Esperanto. The that Venn diagram has got to be seeking them. <laughs> really fascinating. <laughs> I've been seeking them. This has been my creative purpose. <laughs> I don't know how long now. It's you know <laughs> like. I don't want to say your career (laughs) is doomed, but it certainly doesn't seem like it's off to a great start if the people that you're seeking are jazz fans who are familiar with Esperanto. I'm just going to, again, not your agent. I'm going to suggest you cast a wider net. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, you know, there are a lot out there, actually. And and putting this record out has confirmed that, and, and that is kind of the most rewarding thing to me uh, out of this whole experience is, is finding the jazz Esperantists coming out of the woodwork. And I get emails like often from Esperantists from different parts of the world who are asking me like, why did I title my record this? And also the extreme like Esperanto nerds know that my album title is technically gra- grammatically incorrect, which was intentional and so I'm actually getting a lot of emails from Esperantos who are, like, giving me flack about my grammatical choices. Wow. <laughs> that is a special yeah. level of nerd. I mean, I, I proudly wear the title nerd, Which I but can that's, really... Yeah, that's a special Yeah, one. Yeah, like, uh, we can go deep into it, you know, if we, if we want. <laughs> well, let me ask you, because um, in the press materials for this record, it said that the title could translate into English as either reciprocal love or mutual breakdown. And I kind of thought part of the point of Esperanto was to remove ambiguity from language so that this phrase should mean one and only one thing. Is the is the double meaning because it has some uh, an intentional grammatical error in it? Well, I think that, yeah, Esperanto is so much fun creatively because you can translate it in so many different ways. And that, that, that's the real fun for me. Uh, I think what's interesting is that it, it captures an essence more than like spelling it out. And, and that's what feels more appropriate to my soul, I guess. I think it's interesting because the word enemigo itself means falling in love. It doesn't mean love. It, it means falling in love. So amo means love. Enemigo is falling in love. When you use it singular, enemigo with an O at the end, it, as opposed to enemijoy with a OJ at the end, which would be plural, then it, it means that one is falling in love. So I really like the word also because it, it reminded me of enigma as well as enemigo in Spanish, like frenemy. Yeah. And it also, yeah. And, and so a lot of this word evoked so many feelings for me when I discovered it. And it, in French, it means like a penchement. So it kind of And in English, also, it can translate to enamorment. So if you're enamored with something, which is really kind of how I felt about 
piano and trio and improvisation and jazz and just the magic of a piano trio, that, that word gripped me. And so when you pair it with the word reciprocati, which means reciprocation or reciprocal, um, reciprocati with an A-J at the end is plural. So reciprocati, um, when you use the plural form with an amigo singular, it means that one is falling in love and then reciprocally. So everyone else is reciprocating, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the others are falling in love also, which I kind of feel that nails how I feel about improvising when you're in a group. For example, I might be totally enjoying what I'm playing at a given moment with a group of people during an improvisation, but I have no idea what other people are feeling about the exact thing I'm improvising at the moment. And that's something that I'm constantly analyzing every time I play during, during the moment. When you are playing for other people, do you have a goal of them feeling any particular way about what you're playing? I'm always trying to articulate exactly how I feel in a given moment and to be in response with my trio, with the musicians I'm playing with and working with. And I'm definitely like an integral player. I always, my, my, my favorite thing to do is to keep an open ear for whatever's happening and to reciprocate it. So whether it's a riff or a rhythm, that's the funnest thing for, for me is to interact live on stage with, with my band. And so, so there's, the, there's kind of the, an, <laughs> like an... In reciprocati, yeah, if you will. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I will. Um, yeah. There's kind of a, <laughs> an implied... Thank you. You're welcome. Hello, Esperanto. <laughs> That's exactly right. Please send your letters. I'll make sure that Brittany's website is mentioned prominently in this, so you can send all your emails to her. Um, oh my god! There is definitely like kind of an implied emotional bond or simpatico or something between bandmates. Like that. That generally seems to be what people say makes a good shared musical experience. And the for me, the, the trickier bit in any kind of performance is always figuring out where the audience is at any moment. And 
you know, depending on what it is you do, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's different if you're a stand-up comedian versus a jazz musician versus a rock musician, that kind of thing. But I think <laughs> it, there's always that interesting kind of push and pull between, you know, where are we on stage versus where is the audience right now? And do we need to make any moves in their direction? Do we just hope they come along with us? So I'm, I'm just curious about, you know, kind of your your approach to that. How much does where the crowd seems to be influence the direction that you go in? I think it's really fascinating. It's a fascinating challenge for every performer to captivate whoever is surrounding them at a given moment in any given situation. And I think that's the biggest challenge. And the phrase enemigo reciprocati also kind of speaks to trying to make others fall in love with the sound that you are creating. It kind of applies to my feeling about, about live performances. Um, because I think the, the, the most skilled and experienced live performers know that, you know, you get up, you go on the road, you get to the venue, you have no idea what to expect. You don't know if like there will be a working drum kit you have to deal with the situation and the energy um, throughout the day to make sure that when you hit that stage, that you give your all and that you're engaged. And, uh, you know, no matter what the circumstances, and I've played like a lot of insane circumstances in New York for many years. And uh, it's definitely training because, you know, uh, (laughs) I've dealt with like insane situations and then having to play through, you know, any, anything and, and to keep your focus. Yeah, that idea of focus, too, is so is so key. I mean, you like on this record, I really, really like this record. I don't think I've actually said that out loud yet, but I, I really, really enjoy it. And the there seems to be a, a really deep level of communication between all the musicians on it. And that's as noticeable when it's there as when it's not. And so I think, you know, in this case, you, at least certainly I get the feeling that these folks, everybody on the record kind of knows not only the music, but knows the, you know, the sonic environment and the intention in a way that I think comes across and feels really important to me, especially because this is all your own composition. You know, that feels maybe even more vital in a way that people are are roughly on the same page. I don't know if it feels that way to you. Totally. Yeah, I think... I think it's fascinating to the the process of writing the music for this record was really interesting. And then the band, uh, the, the way that we grew on the record and, and how it came in the studio was kind of fascinating. It was about a, I guess, five year process. Um, we were playing out live a lot in New York, mostly at Rockwood music hall. I, when I finished writing the suite and we decided to make like a little tour and then go into the studio so that we would be warm for the, the studio and it's fascinating because as a composer you know i was definitely examining how to write for a band you know that lives in new york that doesn't have time to rehearse and to make everything on the chart so that people can literally just you know throw a chart up and nail it on a gig in a city where people really just don't have time and to make it breathe together and and to also examine how to make a fixed composition but then bring the improvisation to life which is always a gamble and always different every time so that was a you know really big eye-opener and I, I I just really worked really hard to try to get 
each section to be exactly what I wanted. And then you kind of deal with that buffer on the improvisation, spontaneous performance side of bringing the music off the page, because music is not what's on the page, um, you know, to bring it to life and to have soul to it. And that, that was the most important thing to me. Um, but, you know, to execute these ideas and to get them tight. And I'm really happy with what came out on the record. You know, one one of my favorite musicians and mentors said to me that, you know, the record is what it is. It has its own life. And then, you know, when you tour that record, it has another life. And that kind of freed me from like expectations and just letting them breathe on its own. And um, yeah, so I'm I'm pretty excited each time I do the Reciprocati Suite live and I grow and it's, it's just, uh, yeah, it's always a fun, fun ride of the material and to get those things under control and then to have a trio that understands if I play a melody, I can go into a certain direction or a section with it. And, you know, to expect people to memorize like, you know, 30 pages of music is insane, you know, especially when it's jazz and the jazz millions is very hard to like, you know, sustain your living on. So I'm, I'm really grateful for everybody who's been a part of this music and the record and the ride. And Nick Anderson on drums and Greg Chudzik on bass, they've been the ride or die force behind the record on, on, on the whole suite. Let's take a break from the music to talk about membership. I've been recording conversations with jazz musicians since 2007. I think that's important work that deserves public support, and I'd also like to be able to do it for my living. If you agree that preserving jazz in these archives of the jazz session is worth your time and money, become a member today for just $5 a month at thejazzsession.com join. You'll get a monthly bonus episode, early access to every show, and a yearly gift. Also, the summer hiatus is just a few weeks away. There will be a few things in the main feed during July and August, but members will get the majority of the content during the hiatus. Join today so you don't miss it. Again, that's at thejazzsession.com slash join. Now back to the episode. something about each of them and about how you came to play with them? So I met Nick Anderson, the drummer, while I was in school many years ago, and he played with a friend of mine, Mara Rosenblum, in her quartet for years. And then I, you know, would see him around the neighborhood because he's always playing Barbez. And, um, you know, he and I became friends. He, he has like a 
North Dakotan relative family connection. So we always kind of make fun of each other. And anyway, we have like a fun, fun relationship. And I've been in a lot of playing situations with him with other musicians. And so it was just kind of natural that, you know, to call him for the trio. Greg Chudzik is an incredible bassist who I met on a sextet gig for this composer named Alan Chan, based out of LA. And we played a a sextet suite together at the Stone, I want to say 2012. The first time I heard him play Arco, you know, bass, I was just completely taken aback. And I was like, wow, I must work with this bass player for this music that I've been doing. And I knew right away that uh, I, I wanted to work with him. And so a month later, I called him to play trio and he was available. And that, that was the rest is history. What was it about um, his sound or approach to Arco that, that grabbed you so much? So Greg is a classically trained musician who has a lot of jazz chops. Um, he went to Eastman and he's like a super heavy, you know, kind of contemporary new music guy. So he can read and slaughter anything, which is perfect for, you know, a situation where you're putting six page charts in front of people. He just has kind of virtuoso technical chops. And he has this beautiful way of merging that with improvisation. It's exciting to work with somebody with that background, especially when I was, you know, super into Stravinsky and I was arranging Petrushka at the time and I needed a bassist who could play these like ridiculous classical passages on Arco. And, you know, he's a guy, he can do it. He can nail, you know, anything. One of the things that kind of interested me about the way this album is laid out is that the Reciprocati suite is actually kind of broken up throughout the album. There's a, a chunk of it toward the end, um, but it has other compositions of yours in between some of the sections. And I, I just I wondered about that. And I also wondered if when you play it live, do you play the the sections of it with other things in between? Uh, yeah, I definitely make a set list depending on how I feel about the room and how I feel that day. But a lot of the times I like to do the suite as, as one fell swoop, which I've done it in that way. And I, I would start it actually with an arrangement of Petrushka's Russian ballet, and then we would go into All of You. And then from that, we would go into Harfa, and then we would go into Cyrene or Flowery Distress for kind of the full thing. Um, and then it, for me, it always depends on the situation of the live room because the most important thing to me is to give a really good live experience. And my, I love touring. I love playing live. So yeah, it, it depends on the room. Um, the, the songs that are not in the Reciprocati suite were actually written earlier, uh, in, in the kind of journey of the composition of all the record. So if it's, not in the suite, it, chances are it was written like between 2003 to 2005. And it's strange. I finished the suite 2013 to 2015. So it was kind of a 10 year gap. And then I realized that they all fit together sonically. And then that's when I decided to make a record of, of all of them.
people who are listening to this, you know, almost certainly won't know this unless they know this album really well. But the way you just described the, for example, the live order of the suite was not in order, um, which I think is cool. I like the idea that it has component parts, but that they are not they don't need to be rigidly adhered to in some sort of fixed structure. They can kind of be moved around as you see fit. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and the suite, I, you know, I do do it live in order um, seamlessly and that's an experience, but you know, sometimes it winds up being like 20 to 30 minutes long. And if you're playing a place where the audience doesn't have that kind of attention span, like for example, you're playing, you know, a bar, <laughs> you know, people have a need to clap every five minutes. It's kind of interesting. Like you have to kind of, you know, feed them when to clap or not, you know, sometimes they just, you know, it's interesting. Uh, audiences are, are funny. They're fascinating. Um, sometimes, you know, they want you to stop playing so they can mention to their friend, you know, to pass them their beverage or something, you know, it's, <laughs> it's interesting, you know, <laughs> and I'm a very like, sensitive person like i want everybody to be happy all the time you know? <laughs> which is really silly and now the third movement, you know because we call this not the possible. pass the fries movement yes <laughs> pass pass me the beer <laughs> i just I'm recommend hungry. A, an applause sign on the side of the piano that just lights every five minutes and folks can do it and then they feel great and you can just keep right on going almost no matter what's happening <laughs> I'll, I'll have to like rig up an extra pedal at the piano that just that's lights exactly the right. sign up. That's right. What's that fourth <laughs> pedal for? Oh, that lights the applause sign so that everybody relaxes. That's the that's the whole point. Of it. Well, and it, you know, if you attend enough jazz shows, you eventually begin to realize that people. Uh, th- this is in fact a, a a pet peeve of mine, but that's because I'm crotchety. Uh, that people just clap no matter what, and they clap over whatever happens next to kind of show that they can recognize that something just happened. And so, you know, uh, right. Yeah. After every solo, you just, you know, the first t- 10 bars of the next person's thing are removed completely by everybody clapping for the previous one. And, you know, <laughs> jazz goes on <laughs> as it were. Um, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so this record in, uh, in addition to uh, encompassing this suite and the other compositions that you mentioned uh, also, uh, really pays uh, pays homage, um, maybe in a way that, generally speaking, would have to be explained to people, but, uh, but it pays homage to people who were important in your own musical upbringing and, and other musicians that you, that you looked up to. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I can pretty much tell you every single, like, hook or chorus or, you know, block chords that, and where they were inspired from and by who and what record and what track. Um, and, you know, for better or worse, whether that's good or bad, uh, <laughs> you know, you kind of just <laughs> melange your ideas into something. Um, and, uh, you know, so for example, the track Starlight, the very first idea I had for that was the, the chorus on that, the shout chorus. The that, was, that was pretty much straight inspired by Red Garland and Red Garland's block chords on Billy Boy, um, and which I just loved. You know, I like burned a hole in my CD player in the 90s listening to Milestones. That was the first thing that came to me in about 2004. And I actually didn't finish writing that song until 2014, <laughs> so, uh, which I put like the intro on it, which was 
an homage to Oscar Peterson. And then on the, the middle section, which was more like Kenny Kirkland inspired and uh, yeah, overall. And that's just like one track. Um, Hard Boiled Soup was an, it, it's an homage to McCoy Tyner, obviously. Ahmad Jamal definitely comes through on uh, Starlight and Harfa and a lot of the suite, who is my favorite of all time jazz pianist uh, after Duke Ellington. Why? Because the way he uses space in the trio is to me the most magical and romantic use of communicating improvisation from from the keys to me and and the way that he forces a trio to use space is it's just uh incomparably exciting and i can't imagine what it must have been like to have made those records like live at the pershing and to be that comfortable in yourself to just not play and to let the bassist and drummer handle it. That's what I'm interested in exploring confidence in, because I think we live in a world where we have to constantly have thoughts and to, you know, as musicians, we constantly feel like we have to play. And a lot of our training is to deconstruct that and decondition the having to play notes all the time and then to actually say what we're feeling and to be comfortable enough to do that, which is taking the bull by the horns if you will, and laying out exactly what you feel against the expectation that you have to fulfill others' desires and you have to fulfill others' expectations of the notes you play and the way you do that. And uh, space is the most important thing, uh, I think, in that, in that regard. When you take space, it allows you to listen to the bassist and drummer. It allows the bassist and drummer to absorb what you're doing. It allows the audience to absorb something. Um, I'm definitely guilty of playing too many notes, you know, a lot of my time on stage. And so everything for me now is to make sure that everything I do is intentional. And that's a challenge. And it's the, the fun of it. Saying a phrase, meaning what you say, letting the audience absorb it, and enjoy it without expectations of you and for you to not have expectations of them, you know, that they clap or that they respond or that they just absorb it because we're all in the same room and we're all living the same experience and, you know, just kind of tasting this reality and dealing with it. <laughs> Hopefully enjoying it together. (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorite moments um, Uh. on this record is uh, in the very first track where, uh, which is Starlight. Uh, In fact, I'm going to play that moment right now. So that was the bit, and the, oh, the didn't it sound good? The bit is um, uh, where all of a sudden the song just stops for like a half a second, and then kind of f- almost fades back in, um, and it at the end. Yeah, and to me, there's this yeah. uh, beautiful feeling like I've never I've never hang glided, but I kind of imagine the feeling of you know like 
running toward the the edge that you're going to jump off of and then suddenly being in the air and there's there's just that beautiful feeling of the song like just lifting off in that moment and i find that there's a lot of moments throughout this record where there are those times of kind of weightlessness where it just feels like the the music has taken off and and isn't isn't held down by you know my expectations of what it's going to sound like or anything else it just is just completely embodied in those moments which i think is a really tough thing to do and makes me really appreciate listening to this record because i really like those moments where i'm just you know taken out of my experience and and you know really directed into this other you know kind of sense experience um so i really appreciate about that about this record <laughs> thank you i i i don't know what to say <laughs> um that's uh, i think the best feeling to uh receive um your word that definitely i loved adding the electronic component you know people will hear the electronic manipulation of our trio in the studio uh recorded and then reversed and uh looped and that's the intro of starlight so it's kind of like we're going back in time reversing it and looping. It's, it's literally you know it's a beatles recording trick um and we decided to do that like a couple weeks before we went into the studio. on this record uh, uh, Greg and Nick but there are actually two other musicians on the album that I want to make sure we uh, we pay some tribute to too so will you mention them? Yes of course I didn't even get to it um, yeah so we have Ari Fulman Cohen on bass who is just one of the loveliest human beings you'll ever meet and he's been a good buddy and friend on this project and uh, Ben Perowski on drums who is you know amazing and legendary and all sorts of incredible and who I met through working with Elysian Fields and who I've been listening to since I was 12. And it's an incredible honor to, to meet someone and, and then have them enjoy your music and enjoy playing your music and that he was willing to go into the studio with me and record. 
as well. So both of them were free to do the last composition I wrote, which I wrote after I recorded with Nick and Greg, and I felt that I needed to have it on the record. So that's why I went in again, and Nick and Greg weren't free, so I called Ben and Ari, and we went into the studio. And so it's it's funny, because like, you know, people are like, why don't you have the same faces and grammar on the whole record? And it's like, well, music doesn't happen in the way that doesn't happen in, you know, these organized little boxes that you expect. And, you know, certainly doesn't, like, compositions don't arise in that way either. Which is even more interesting, given that, given that the music on this record spans like a decade of your writing. You know, it's cool yeah. that there was still more to be said, you know, even kind of at the the last moment, so to speak, which I, I, I think is kind of cool. Yeah, it's it's a problem. It's a problem I have. I <laughs> wake well, up. Yeah, that's one I way get, to look at it, I guess. I, <laughs> I get ideas. I actually, for a while, started getting terrified of my own ideas because it meant I had to finance my ideas. And, you know, when you make a living as a, you know, jazz pianist in New York, you and you're creative, you know, and it starts to feel the pressure that your ideas cost more than, you know, to just, you know, survive and live your life somewhat decently. Uh, that's, you know, the hardest thing I think about uh, creativity is, you know, and then the reason of, you know, the, the existential crisis of like making music or making records and, you know, why and you know like expressing yourself and then hoping to connect and find people who will appreciate it like jazz esperantists <laughs> <laughs> the uh the quickly inserted why in that sentence is maybe the saddest thing i've ever heard in my entire life <laughs> That's uh, that's my my you know pride and joy of uh, playing jazz. It's, you know, uh, I'm gonna find the most diminished the chord I can possibly find in my life behind you saying the word "why" in that sense. Oh my god, <laughs> I, I can't wait to hear it. Uh. Why? It's often the case that by the time I'm talking to someone about the record that just came out, they're kind of thinking of what the next thing is already because they're they're at the tail end of a long process. And I wonder, if, is that true for you as well? Are you already thinking about what the next thing might be or are you already working on the next thing? Yeah, totally. I actually have uh, four bands that I lead. Um, so this is just one kind of, you know, journey as a pianist uh, leading a trio that has been my primary dream as a musician and my primary training since I was five studying piano. The next record I'm putting out, uh, we just finished mixing it uh, this month and we're getting to master it soon. And it is called Nong Boru. Uh, and it is with my Ghanaian xylophonist mentor, Alfred Kwebisane, who I met while I lived in Ghana and studied Ghanaian xylophone. Um, because I, I'm also a vibraphonist and, uh, I went to Ghana for about six months and studied traditional Ghanaian xylophone, which is a funeral music, um, through Bernard Woma, who passed away, uh, a year ago. Um, the late great Bernard Woma, who is one of the premier traditional xylophonists who had 
spread the music around the world internationally and uh, founded the Dagara Music Center at Site of Accra in Ghana. And so I guess over 13 years ago, I went there and met Alfred and Alfred moved to New York a couple years ago. And so we started recording an album and the album has Ghanaian xylophone, which is a very, it's a non-Western traditional microtonal tuning that has a lot of overtones and is very fuzzy. and the instrument is traditionally used in ceremonies and it's meant to honor the dead. So the music is traditional Ghanaian xylophone songs and some of Alfred's originals. Um, Alfred is a very wacky, interesting, funny fellow. And he, he, you know, has like really interesting song ideas himself. And he's put out several records of his own in Ghana. So the music is, you know, some traditional tunes as well as his original tunes. We're blending Ghanaian xylophone and that tradition, which is typically two Ghanaian xylophones and a drummer, into a jazz ensemble where we have Ghanaian xylophone. Uh, I'm on various synth keyboards and we have a drummer, April Centrone, drums on this record. And then we have uh, Oren Blodow on bass. Uh, Rich Bennett plays bass on this record as well. And we have some electronic computer processing manipulations from a program uh, by a really wonderful electronic musician named Michael Klemau, uh, who uses Gleach Lab and a few other um, technical tricks. So what we have come out with on this record is that it is a, it's a, it's combining um, Ghanaian and jazz Western instruments with kind of futuristic. We're going from like deep tradition and acoustic music into electronic music. So it's a journey and it's very trippy. It's definitely, I think, stoner friendly. And I'm really excited for it because it sounds great. Um, so that that's so, going to be coming out hopefully in the next year. May I briefly interrupt you to say that mm-hmm. as we we were approaching kind of the, the natural end, you know, you ask the question about what's coming up and people start to talk about it. And you decided in that moment to just mm-hmm. casually as you possibly could say, oh yeah, and the next album, and then just drop about 15 different genres of music all in that one. It's like, th- I could do three more shows just asking you what the hell are you talking about about the last two minutes of everything that you just said. And this episode would be like four hours long. So I'm sorry. <laughs> it's awesome. It's dangerous. It's... <laughs> It's just, it's completely beautiful and wonderful, and we're not going to get to it. We're just not going to get to it because, uh, you know, people will only listen for so long to right. the episode. But, well, that's, I mean, that's have enough to come back info because, on that project. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's just insane. I just love that you just, it's just at the very end, like, oh, and here's 10 different things you've never heard of, and I'm putting them all in one record, and I'm going to tell you about it in a minute and a half, and then we're going to move on to the next thing. That just that was a beautiful right. moment. Yeah, I'm very excited about it. So. Synopsis. Well, thank you. Um, I guess maybe I shouldn't mention my feminist punk band that I lead and do death metal vocals in. That's called By Tyrant. 
um, or the next upcoming blend of my trio with by Tyrant songs where I'm doing a full jazz trio uh, journey through lady parts and uh, reproductive rights, which actually I'm going to be doing one of one or two selections on tour with enemy Joe reciprocate because I get bored easily and my creativity just starts to, I don't know, <laughs> eat itself alive. I don't know. I don't know what else I've learned from this interview well, other than that we should be best friends. That's the only that's oh my the only conclusion I can draw. Everything you've just mentioned is so fascinating to me and I, I could just I would love to talk about it for hours and hours. So we'll definitely first of all you'll definitely have to come back but also we should be best friends, which is not a thing I normally say on this show. But it's just it's rare that someone says as many weird things in a row that are all my kind of weird and you know, when that happens, you you should take note of it because, you know, those moments in your life are, are fleeting. So it's cool. Jason, you, yes. ha- you, you, you had me at you mailed in <laughs> to learn Esperanto from Tucson. Yes, that's that's my Jerry Maguire moment right there. Uh, I'm with you all the way. <laughs> You mailed in for a Learn Esperanto Now kit. That's amazing. In the 90s. <laughs> yeah, well, that's From how, Tucson. That's how we were doing it oh back in the day, as it were. Um, so, Brittany, are there chances for people to see you live coming up? Yes, of course. On Thursday, June 6th, I'm playing at the Old Church in Portland, Oregon. And we're doing the, the full Anime Joe Reciprocati with... Evan Flory Barnes on bass again with Matt Jorgensen on drums. And then Evan, Matt, and I will drive up to Vancouver, BC on Friday, June 7th. We're playing Vancouver, BC at 8 East, presented by the Now Society, which is a cool community arts organization. And we're doing a double bill in Vancouver, BC with uh, Lisa K. Miller on piano and her band Hedgeras Brew. We will be playing at East on Friday, June 7th at 8 p.m. After that, we have a couple more dates. I go back east. I'm, I'm playing New York City on June 14th at the Church of Grace in St. Paul's in Upper West Side in Manhattan on 71st Street. So that will be on, I believe, Friday, June 14th at 8 p.m. And then after that, we will be doing a little New England tour. So I'll be playing Boston July 5th at the Aeronaut Brewery from 7 to 8 p.m. And that's with John Medham on drums. We're going to take that trio. It'll be John Medham on drums and different bassist uh, Rob Gary and Tyler Hadoff. So it will be Friday, July 5th at the Aeronaut Brewery in Boston. Uh, Saturday, July 6th at Blue in Portland, Maine. And then Sunday, July 7th at the Dance Hall in Kittery, Maine, which is right on the border of Portsmouth, New Hampshire. So if you're in the Portsmouth, New Hampshire area, you can catch the show just right across the border there easily. And then I'll be going back to Brooklyn and playing a solo set at a really neat piano curated series curated by this guy, David Berkman at the Soapbox Gallery on Saturday, July 13th, um, I believe from 3 to 6 p.m. Woo! Okay, I did it. <laughs> I didn't know if I could get through all of that. <laughs> Nicely done. 
Um, and I, I will just mention there were a lot of names mentioned on this show, but I will mention that Ben Porowski has been on the jazz session. So has uh, David Berkman, uh, who was just mentioned, and some of the other folks uh, whose names have come up as well. So people can always dig into the archives and find those interviews. Uh, my guest for wow, the show, fantastic. and you know, it, it sounds like it'll be necessary for seven more shows, uh, has been Brittany Andrew. Uh, she has a new album and about 17 other new things coming out. But the album that we were talking about this time around uh, <laughs> is, was, and Amijo uh, Reciprocata. And uh, Brittany, it's been just such an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I, I really appreciate you taking the time, and uh, I look forward to another chance to do this. Yes, me too. Thank you so much, Jason. I really appreciate it. <laughs> and that's the show. If you like what you just heard, become a member for five bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. My thanks to this week's guest, Brittany Anju. Thanks also to the Respect Sextet, who wrote and performed the theme music to the show. You'll find them at respectsextet.com. Dave Rabel designed the logo. You can follow The Jazz Session on social media at facebook.com slash thejazzsession, Twitter at jazzsesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H, Instagram at thejazzsession, and YouTube at thejazzsession.com slash YouTube. I post a clip from the archives each weekday at 1 p.m. on Instagram and Twitter, and I also post them at somewhat more random times to the YouTube channel. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference. It helps other people find the show more easily. You can subscribe to my twice-monthly newsletter. Go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter tab at the top. I put out a new episode every Wednesday. Next week, my guests are Allison Miller and Carmen Stoff. Come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.